Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, hello. My name is Frank. I'm the Mayfair Road Campus Pastor. I had so much fun last week, so I wanted to do it again. So uh, I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 20. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. Uh, What was uh, an event in your life that changed everything? What was a moment, an event in your life, that, that nexus event, that after that moment, everything absolutely changed? Uh, so my dream um, throughout high school was to play professional football. I, wanted to, I had a plan, I was going to go play college football, and then I was going to play professional football, whether that was in the NFL, whether that was in Canada or Europe. Like I, wanted, I just wanted to get paid to play the game of football. That was my dream. And I was, on, I was on track for that. I got a scholarship to play college football. I went to a small school in South Carolina. People from that school went to the NFL, so I, I saw a trajectory towards that. Uh, and it was all good until it wasn't because one day I broke my knee, tore my ACL and my MCL. After that, I soon had to get surgery. I was in the hospital. I think I've said this before. I was in the hospital bed recovering after surgery, looking at the ceiling, asking God, Why? Why did you allow this to happen? And I don't think I knew it at the time, but I soon realized later that after that, everything had changed. Everything from that moment on would never be the same. And so one thing that you may know if you see me walk a lot, which I don't know how you would, but if you see me walk, you may notice that I have a limp when I walk. Sometimes it's worse than other days. And that's because um, when it's cold, it feels like the screw in my knee is kind of turning. So it hurts a lot. So I, I, have, a little, I have a little bounce when I walk, right? Um, but what really changed in my life is after... I realized that football was no longer in the cards, that God was calling me to come back to Florida and to go to Bible college to become a pastor. I had no five-year plan. I I had no idea what was going to be next. I just had to trust that the Lord was going to take care of me, that he had a plan for me. And uh, nothing was the same after the Lord allowed my knee to be broken. Today we're going to talk about the resurrection. And this event changed everything. And my prayer today is that it has changed you. Jesus, uh, last where we, where we read, read yet last week, he was betrayed, he was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was crucified. On the cross, Jesus died for the sins of the world. And then he was buried in a tomb, and Pontius Pilate ordered there would be a stone rolled in front of the tomb as serves as a seal, and there's these guards guarding the tomb, and that's where we left off. And so we're going to pick up in John chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 1. I hope you follow along. Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So we don't know a lot about this Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. But what we do know is she is one of the most significant women Actually, one of the most significant people in the death and resurrection story of Jesus. So, in Luke chapter 8, we get first introduced to this Mary where uh, she is possessed by seven demons. And then Jesus heals her. And from that moment on, she's a faithful follower of Jesus. So much so that if you remember last week, standing at the cross next to the mother of Jesus is Mary Magdalene. She 
Uh, unlike the disciples who all ran away in fear when Jesus got arrested, unlike the disciples who were nowhere to be found in Jesus' most vulnerable state, Mary Magdalene is there, and she is here at the tomb because she loves Jesus. And, and when she gets to the tomb, something is wrong because the gravestone, the stone that was in front of the tomb has been rolled away, and she realized that, there's, that Jesus is missing. And so she goes and does something about it. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So if you've been following us in this series, in the Gospel of John, there is this character called uh, the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved, and that is John, the author of this gospel. He, he chooses to remain anonymous, though, if I have to be honest, the fact that he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved is a little bit of a humble brag. But um, he really is one of Jesus's, he is Jesus' best friend. So much so, if you remember last week, uh, Jesus entrusted John to care for his own mother. Um, Mary says that they have taken the Lord, and they don't know where they've taken him. We don't know who Mary is referring to when she says they. Some people may think it's grave robbers, which was a thing, but not as common as most would expect. Probably the likely group that Mary's thinking about are the Jews, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders at the time. They wanted Jesus to be dead. They didn't want him imprisoned. They didn't want him beaten. They wanted him dead. And so it stands to reason that maybe they, the Jewish leaders stole Jesus' body because Jesus did say to the Jewish leaders that after three days he would rise again. And so just to make sure that doesn't happen, perhaps the Jewish leaders took the body so on day four they could be like, nah, he's here, he's dead, he's not alive, right? Like, it's, it's weird, it's a stretch, but that could be who she's thinking of. Regardless of who the they is, what is important here is that she realizes the tomb is empty. The, the gravestone has been moved. Something is wrong in this scene. And so Mary goes to the disciples and tells them about it. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were, were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love this. I love that John wants to keep himself anonymous, but he wants to remind you, I work out, Right? Like, he's like, he's like, no, 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 I don't want to say my name, but I do some 5Ks in the weekends, right? Like, he wants to make sure you know he's faster than Peter, right? Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The first point I want you to, to write down today, if you're taking notes, <coughs> is that the resurrection changes fiction to fact. The resurrection changes fiction to fact. So believe it or not, it's a fairly agreed upon fact that the tomb was empty that morning when Mary, John, and Peter got there. Not everyone believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but any credible historian from that time 
would agree that there was a man named Jesus and that he was real, he lived, he was executed by the Romans, he was buried, and three days later after he was buried, the tomb that he was buried in was empty. On those points, there's no substantial disagreement whether you're a Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're atheist, everyone kind of, most, for the most part, agrees on those statements. Because Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection, there has been a, skeptics of the resurrection who've came up with theories on what happened to Jesus' body that day. I want to tell you about two of them, but I want to show you why those two theories make no sense with the attention here of the burial cloth. The, 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 over and over again in this passage, it talks about the burial cloths laying there, and I want to tell you two popular theories of what happened to Jesus' body and why this passage completely diminishes those theories. The first one is the stolen body theory. There are two possible groups who could have stolen the body of Jesus. Like I said, there could have been grave robbers, and the other likely candidate could have been the disciples. Now, both don't make sense, and let me explain. It doesn't make sense for grave robbers to steal the body of Jesus because of the way the linen cloths were laying there. They were like neat. In fact, it said that one of them was folded. If grave robbers were trying to rob and steal the body of Jesus, they would have either taken the whole body of Jesus in the grave clothes and ran away, or they would have ripped open the, the grave clothes and taken the body of Jesus, right? They wouldn't have left the body clothes laying flat there and the face covering folded. Like, have you ever had your car radio stolen? I have. And let me tell you what robbers didn't do. They didn't break the window and then vacuum up the glass and then fold in my Chick-fil-A napkins, right? No one did that. They just took the radio and left the car a mess, right? It doesn't make sense that these are, that there would have been grave robbers because of the placement of the burial cloths. This is probably why it said that when John looked at the burial cloths, he, he believed because he realized that the way the burial cloths were laid out, it doesn't make sense that someone would have stolen the body, but something more miraculous must have happened. Now, one group of people <coughs> that could have stolen the body were the disciples, right? They would have incentive to maybe propagate that Jesus rose from the grave. But here's the thing. The same disciples who were in fear, who ran away the moment Jesus got arrested, who were nowhere to be found at his crucifixion, all of a sudden got bold and decided to plot to steal the body of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. But let's run that thought out for a second. In Matthew's gospel, it says that they sealed the tomb with a stone that probably weighed around 2,000 pounds. And we also know from that same gospel that uh, Pontius Pilate put trained soldiers to guard the tomb. So if you believe that disciples all of a sudden turned into a bunch of avengers, went out there, beat up the soldiers, pushed that tomb in the way, then I have to ask you the question, what would be the benefit of stealing the body of Jesus? Like, for what? For money? The disciples never got rich. For power? They never had any power. For fame? Every single one of the disciples were beaten, tortured, and murdered for their faith. People do not die or sacrifice themselves for what they know is a lie. It, the stolen body theory doesn't hold up because it doesn't benefit the disciples, and the way the tomb looks doesn't make sense that it was robbers. Now, the other theory is called the swoon theory. The theory is that the belief that Jesus didn't really die on the cross— but that he was merely unconscious, and that he woke up in the tomb, got out of the burial wraps, and walked out. 
Again, let's, let's play that scenario out because, again, it doesn't make sense. Jesus first would have to survive all the beatings leading up to the cross, right? Every single punch, every single whipping, his back being open from the flogging. He would have to survive all that. And then when he actually gets to the cross, his hands and his feet are pierced. Beyond that, he would have to convince a professional executioner that he was dead. Convince him, so that, and that's the reason why they didn't break his legs. Beyond that, he would have to survive a spear that went into his side that also probably punctured his heart because when they pulled the spear out, blood and water came out. And so let's say he did survive all that. He would then have to stay very, very still when they wrapped him up in the burial cloth with over 100 pounds of cloth and spices and perfumes. And then after that, after waiting patiently, he would have to like kind of get out of that like it's a Snuggie or something and just slowly get out of the burial cloth, fold up the face napkin, then go and move a 2,000-pound stone by himself, I guess beat up the soldiers and then wait for Mary. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. The Bible seems to indicate that he passed through the linen cloth. So later we're going to read about how Jesus is going to meet one of the, some of the disciples and he's going to pass through a locked door that he's going to enter into. And in the same way, when Jesus was laying on the bench in the tomb, he passed through the burial cloth. And if you were there, the fabric that was around him would have fallen flat like a flat tire. And then he took the face cloth, folded it, left it there. And then the Bible says uh, that the angel of the Lord moved the stone open and that the, the, the soldiers guarding the tomb saw the angel, freaked out, and ran away. Now, here's the interesting part. At the end of the book of Matthew, it says that some of those same guards who fled went straight to the chief priests and told them everything they saw. And those Jewish leaders paid off the soldiers and told them, don't tell anyone what you saw, but rather tell them, that the, tell people that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. The Jewish leaders rather cover up the truth and believe lies to maintain power and control than to believe that Ju Jesus truly raised from the dead. The reason why this is a big deal is because if Jesus truly raised from the dead, then everything he said about himself and how we ought to live and how we receive salvation is true because no one has ever raised himself from the dead except for Jesus alone. Because at the resurrection, if the death of Jesus was the payment for our sins, then the resurrection of Jesus was the receipt showing that that payment went through. Our relationship with God is now reconciled because of the resurrection, and the resurrection shows that Jesus is alive. There is so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Tons of really, really smart people and scholars have written books and made videos and articles about it. I could, I could talk about this all day, but we got to keep going in our text. So I did something for you. If you go to thehub.epicus.org, I have a blog post called The Resurrection is Real. And there you'll find videos, you'll find articles and books that you can read all about why we can be confident that the resurrection was a real historical event beyond a shadow of a doubt. Go to thehub.epicus.org and, and you can read that article. The resurrection is a real historical event. Let's keep going. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. 
one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary is grieving. She loves Jesus and has been faithful when everyone else was a coward and scattered. She was next to Jesus' mother at the cross. She was at the tomb when no one else was there. And she has been faithful to Jesus. And she's mourning now. She's grieving because she believes that this man that she loves, that, their, that his body has been stolen. She's grieving. Mary sees angels. And that doesn't even stop Mary's tears. Her response to the angels are, someone has taken the body of Jesus, and I don't know where they've taken him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. What John is basically saying is that when she turned around, she, she saw a person who is Jesus, but she didn't really see him as Jesus. She, like, saw a man, she, she didn't recognize that to be Jesus. So they, we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Because clearly Mary knows who Jesus is. Well, it could be because it was dark and her eyes are watery and so maybe she just couldn't see, right? But what's interesting is in the, in the, in the Gospels, there are multiple people who interacted with Jesus after the resurrection who didn't recognize Jesus immediately. In fact, they like walked with Jesus for a while and, and, or either they didn't recognize him or they doubted that it really was Jesus. The other thing it could be is that Jesus is in his glorified state. He has his glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, that there's a glorified body after we die and, and it will be better and perfect than our earthly bodies. It won't be affected by aging. It won't be affected by disease. And so perhaps Jesus' physical body has changed in a way that maybe Mary can't recognize him. Um, we too, the Bible says that you and I are all going to get a glorified body if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you better believe you will not recognize me. All right? I will be shredded. I will have a full head of hair. And I won't need allergy medicine anymore. Like, I'm going to be hot and be able to breathe. It's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem in heaven, yo. Um, the other reason, and this is probably the more practical one of why Mary can't recognize Jesus is her grief is preventing her from seeing Jesus. I don't know if there's a better TV show that depicts the effects of grief than the show WandaVision. Now, I understand it's a Marvel show. I understand it's a show about a witch who falls in love with a robot, but hear me out. There's a scene where Wanda is processing all her grief, all her trauma when she was a child to the present day. And she's sitting there depressed and sad, unable to understand what is going on and why she feels the way she feels. She is in deep, deep grief. She's lost her parents. She's lost her brother. She's lost everything. And Vision, the robot, tells her what is probably the best line ever written in television history. He says, but what is grief if not love persevering? What is grief if not love persevering. Grief makes you do irrational things. Why, why is John outrunning Peter? Why is Mary at the tomb in, early in the morning when it's still dark? Why is Mary completely unbothered when she sees angels? It's because of grief. 
She loves Jesus so much that everything else just doesn't matter and her actions don't make sense because love, when you're grieving, just does stuff. You're not thinking about what's rational, what's reasonable, or what's real. You're just acting because your love in your grief is making you move. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary is looking at Jesus. For some reason, she thinks he's the gardener. I don't know why she thinks that. But what's interesting is she's not completely wrong because the first man to ever live was a gardener in a garden. Through his actions, the whole world changed in the worst way. But this new man in Jesus, who's a gardener in the garden, in his perfect obedience, has changed the world in the best way. Mary says, if, you, if, if he knows where the body of Jesus is, she will go and, and, and grab him. Like, who does Mary think she is that she's going to carry the dead weight of a corpse, probably double her size? Like, she's not thinking straight, but this is grief. To still love so deeply that you just act. You don't know why you feel the way you feel. This sadness in her grief is preventing her view of Jesus. Can you relate? Your grief may not be the loss of a loved one, like Mary, but your grief is still real. You had a relationship that died, and with that came the death of all the dreams of the future you wanted with that person. Or maybe your, your sadness comes from your infertility that is triggered in ways you never expected, and that deep desire for a child but unable to have one is really hard some days. Or, or you've been single for so long that any conversation about marriage or planning for the future causes tears to swell in your eyes. Or maybe your health isn't great and you dread every doctor's visit and now instead of making a list of what you want to do in the future, you're making a list of the things you need to add to your will. If that's you, I get it. Grief is incredibly powerful. And grief can blind your vision and harden your heart so thoroughly that, like Mary, you can't see Jesus standing right in front of you. I'm going to ask this question to you. How is your grief blocking your view of Jesus? How is your grief blocking your view of Jesus? When we are grieving or suffering, sometimes we ask these questions like, like, what's the point? Like, like, we think God has abandoned us. We think God has forgotten about us. We think that he must not love us. And I want you to hear me. That's so far from the truth. What is happening is we are so focused on our grief that we believe that the presence of pain must mean a lack of care from God. But don't believe the lies your pain is telling you. Don't believe that you are less than anyone else. Don't believe that you are missing out. Don't believe that you, there is something wrong with you or that God is punishing you. Don't believe that God has forgotten you. Why? Let's look at what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And so here's my second point for you. The resurrection changes grief to grace. The resurrection changes our grief to grace. Jesus calls her by her name. At this moment, 
the shades on her eyes are pulled away. The, like the stone at the tomb, her heart of stone is rolled away. And in the midst of her grief and her pain, there is Jesus calling her by her name. The resurrection shows us that God is not indifferent towards us. God is not in heaven looking down on us like we're a bunch of ants in an ant pile. But he cares about us and he knows you by your name. Jesus could have resurrected in a way more audacious way. He could have had a choir of angels singing. He could have had trumpets blowing a voice from heaven shouting, He has risen. This is the greatest miracle to ever happen in human history. Overcoming sin and death. Defeating Satan. Stomping on the head of the snake. Vindicating everything he has ever said about himself. But what is the very first thing that Jesus does? He comforts a woman in the pit of her grief. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the character of our Lord, that he cares about you. He cares about you. Mary loved Jesus. She was faithful to Jesus and was grieving. Was grieving because he died. Was grieving because she thought that his body was stolen. And Jesus met her in her, Jesus met her in her grief and turned her grief into grace. John chapter 10 reminds us that Jesus promised us that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. And Mary heard her name and instantly realized that the good shepherd was in front of her. After this, Mary apparently gave Jesus like the biggest hug ever because this is what Jesus said to her in verse 17. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Jesus saying to her not to cling to her, not to cling to him, has nothing to do with like, him um, being rude or being weird about being touched. But rather this has to do with mission. Mary has the unique privilege of being the first person to tell others that she has seen the resurrected Savior. Jesus is saying, hey, don't hang on to me. Go and do what you're called to do, telling others that I'm alive. The first person to understand that Jesus was dead, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again was a formerly demon-possessed woman named Mary. And Jesus turned her grief into grace by giving her the unique privilege and purpose to tell others that Jesus is alive. The resurrection changes everything. So the year is 2022, and that's because 2,022 years ago, we decided to change the way we count our years based on the birth of Jesus Christ. And the reason why we care about the birth of that baby is because that baby grew up and died and was buried, but that baby rose again. The reason why Christmas matters is because Easter happened. The reason why, because of that, everything has changed. It, it changed the way we count our years. It's the reason why we don't worship on Saturday anymore, but the reason why we worship on Sunday. The reason why the, the symbol of Christianity is a cross and not Jesus on the cross is because Jesus isn't dead anymore. Jesus isn't in the tomb. Jesus is alive. 
It changed everything. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have assurance that we will rise again too. Because Jesus got a glorified body, we will get a glorified body. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. We can have this resurrection power in our lives, the power to see Jesus break addictions, heal relationships, and give us the resurrection hope and joy that can only come from heaven, a joy and a hope that is not of this world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So all of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. Paul says, you take this out, we got nothing. Like, Every single disciple who died, died in vain, died for nothing. What I'm doing, I'm just losing my voice for nothing. All of our singing, all of our giving, all of our time here at church is wasted. And every single sin that we have, we are now trapped to, slaves to our addiction, to our mistakes, and to our choices. All of our hope is gone, and the best we can have is to be pitied, because when we die, we just end up in a grave. But if the resurrection is true changes everything. Look at how it changed the disciples. Before the resurrection, you couldn't get the disciples up. After the resurrection, you couldn't shut them up. Before the resurrection, they were afraid. After the resurrection, they were courageous. Before the resurrection, they questioned everything. After the resurrection, they were confident. Before the resurrection, they were seeking directions. After the resurrection, they were giving directions. The resurrection changes everything. We, we see here how it changed Mary. We know from the epistles it changed the disciples. But the question I have for you is, do you believe that the resurrection can change you? We can have confidence that the resurrection is real. Again, go to the hub.epicus.org. There is an article with links and stuff like that. But here's what I want to do. If you are not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not a believer of Jesus, you got like tricked into coming to church or whatever, I want to challenge you, go to that website and, and see the claims of why we believe the resurrection is a real historical event. And let's talk about it. Uh, if you are a believer, my challenge for you if you go to that website is this. Does your life reflect the reality that Jesus is alive? Does your life reflect the reality that Jesus conquered sin and death for you to change your life? Does your life reflect the change, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Watch those links, watch those videos, and see if it stirs something up in you. We can have hope in the midst of our grief because Jesus is with us. When I quit football, I had a season where I had to grieve the death of my dream of playing football. I understand now that without the death of that dream, I wouldn't be here today, but, but like, there was legitimately like a summer where I was depressed. What got me through that was believing that if God put me in that situation, or if God allowed me to be in that situation, then surely God is gonna be with me in the midst of that situation. And so God was with me and he was working all things together for my good. Though I might have been able to see at the time, I know I could trust that God did not forget about me and he was with me in my season of grief. What also got me to experience and feel the presence of God in that season was when God's people surrounded themselves around me to, to, to share my grief with me and to walk with me in that season. 
Every week I read the prayer requests and the orange cards of every single person that writes a prayer request at Mayfair Road. I pray for them by name. I know at every campus, the campus pastor reads the orange card prayer request that you guys write. And I want to encourage you. If you put your name, your email, your phone number, we're going to protect that information. We're not going to share it with anybody. But the main reason why we really want you to fill out those orange cards is because we believe in prayer. And we want to pray for you. And we don't want to pray ambiguously about you. We want to pray for you by name. And so if you're struggling, if you're grieving, if you're suffering, fill out an orange card so that we can pray for you. There's a team of people at Epicus who are praying with and for you every single week. When the offering buckets come by, you can drop those orange cards in there. But know that God is with you in your grief. Allow us as a church to come around you, to grieve with you, and help lead you to the joy that can be only found in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection changes everything. Our hope and joy lie in the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection can change Mary, if the resurrection can change the disciples, if the resurrection can change the world, then it can change you. He can change your grief, your addictions, your bad habits, your marriage, your family. The resurrection changes everything, but he begins when he changes you. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When you trust that when Christ died on the cross, he took your sins with him. And in exchange, he gave you his righteousness so that you can have a relationship with God forever. When you put your faith in that, it changes you. It changes you from lost to found, from blind to seeing, from rebel sinner to brother or sister in Jesus, from enemy of God to a child of God. The resurrection changes everything. But has the resurrection changed you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You're good to us. You're gracious to us. And we celebrate. We don't, we don't, just celebrate the resurrection on Easter because every day is Easter because we know that today, right now, Jesus is still alive. The grave is still empty and our hope is secure. On that day, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And today we can rest assured that our salvation has been purchased. Our salvation is sealed and we can trust that we'll be with you. Lord, there's folks in this room, there's folks in this church who are grieving. Be with us in our grief. Help us to hear you saying our name the same way you said Mary's name that day. Help us to feel your, your presence and your warmth around us. And help us to remember that because of the resurrection, we're not grieving alone. That you're with us. You're walking with us. You share our sufferings. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of our grieving, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our struggles, we see the resurrection hope and joy that only you can offer us. Lord, be with us. In your son's name I pray. Amen.